Ladies, gents and droids, welcome to Host, the podcast commentating on the world of technology. I'm your host Lloyd and accompanying me is our producer Snare. We're here to give you the latest intel on companies with either an awesome ethos or a brilliant central figure, usually both. On today's panel, we've got two incredible guests, Professor Luciano Feridi from Oxford University and Alec Makata, CEO of Hadeen. We discuss major questions about tech and data that go largely untouched in wider conversation, including the ethics of AI, data, surveillance, and so much more. Instead of hosting this episode, I'm contributing on the panel, albeit not that much, because the other two chaps are a little bit more intelligent than me, but I'll, I'll pitch in where I can. Um, so, so in an interesting turn of events, our producer has been um, promoted to, uh, to chairwoman or chairperson. Don't know what's appropriate there. Um, not sure she'll get to do that again, but fair play. You're going to want to listen right through because the debate is very interesting throughout. Gets pretty heated. I'd say that the uh, red line throughout it is ethics and albeit we all seem to have uh, opinion on where we'd like it to go. The question is, are we actually doing what we should? And host really wants you to all get behind this join our network and really champion thinking through ethics and tech moving forward. And certainly Luciano and Alec have a great debate. Please enjoy and listen in and share. So let's just get started on the questions. And I'm going to start with um, Luciano. And uh, I'm going to ask him a few questions on his background as an academic. Um, so Luciano, your work is highly regarded by both scholars and non-scholars alike. So what exactly drove your interest towards philosophy and ethics of information? So I, I grew up as a, as a very, very boring philosopher. No, the worst kind, the kind that, that works on things that nobody cares about. Uh, and uh, uh, at some point, I really got bored myself, with myself. Uh, you, know, you, you just kind of remember when you were younger and enthusiastic. And you thought you had that fire. Yeah. And it says, philosophy is what changes the world, what makes me understand the world, what gives meaning to life. And then all of a sudden you're working on something that nobody cares at all, not even your mom. So you wake up one day <laughs> and say, what am I doing with my life? I mean, I'm in, no, train, no, PhD, everything no, in the pocket, and I'm fully trained to take care of a little tiny, niche of a scholarly academic topic that, trust me, not even people in the field cares about, or I could move into something a little bit more relevant, interesting and daring and also challenging. And I thought, what, what, what is really driving my passion? And I, I had always been attracted, um, I grew up as a logician, basically, so halfway between philosophy and computer science, uh, you know, with that interest in uh, how things work inside. And then I thought, well, there is more to, to do for philosophy today than, uh, than just uh, writing papers for uh, specialized journals in areas that, as I said, are really of no interest to anyone. Um, and I had quantitative data to show that no one cares, so just in case. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so the point became what to do, um, and you start looking around, and I had been struggling with this topic of um, a philosophy of knowledge where you are interested really in the stuff rather than in the people dealing with the stuff. 
And I came across a, an article by Karl Popper uh, that was called Epistemology Without Knowing Subject. Basically, to your knowledge without taking care of the agent, but just the knowledge itself. And I just realized, oh, I would call that really information, basically. And I, so that was the passion that I had. Uh, and all of a sudden, I thought, well, I can join the two things, my no, philosophical training and my passion, into a single block, saying, I remember even when I was. I mean, I don't remember the name of the girl with whom I was, but I remember exactly where I was in college, in Oxford, uh, uh, Wolfson College, on the river. I've forgotten who I was with, but I remember this ha-ha moment, like, oh, I, I, I had to give a talk in London. I said, well, maybe I can call this philosophy of information. And um, it doesn't seem to be too bad as a label. There is not. <laughs> uh, and I was 24, 25, something like that. And um, all of a sudden, I gave that talk, and the talk was called, Should There Be a Philosophy of Information? It was a great success. <laughs> surprise. And ever after that, I started working more and more in the area, uh, and I realized that there was so much more. Uh, those were the days when uh, uh, there were things called Alta Vista, and uh, uh, we used modems to connect. Uh, the internet was a community of scholars and military sort of personnel. <laughs> it go, the days that we, we've forgotten about. Uh, but then I remember, uh, then that's the last bit I want to add, essentially talking to some colleague and say, look, there's this thing called the internet, and I think it's going to change the world. And I still, still remember some people saying, especially one person of my, I admired a lot at the time, said, saying, Internet is a fashion, it's not going to last. <laughs> uh, I, and I said, I, I won't say the name of this person, uh, it would be embarrassing, but uh, that was the last time we interacted. Uh, say, <laughs> and this is going to change the world. Uh, ever, ever, ever since, has been uh, like an easy ride. <laughs> <laughs> so where did the inspiration for a tetralogy come from? Um, and, and whose scholars' style do you really try and emulate throughout your work? Is, are there any kind of like heroes of yours in terms of scholarly work that you, you try and, you know, follow in their footsteps almost? Yeah. Or are you kind of, no, I'm completely original and I create crazy original content all the time? So that, that is a bit of a, a crazy uh, project. But, <coughs> excuse me, um, there's a funny part and, and a serious part. The serious part is um, once you start realizing that the world is undergoing such a profound revolution, it's, it's easy to start thinking in terms of um, an ambitious project saying, look, we, we walk into a 21st century which has a huge conceptual deficit. Essentially, we are using modern tools to understand uh, uh, something that is not modernity, something that is not even post-modernity, it's something we actually don't know, it's an uncharted territory. But it's like look, using a map of Europe to understand Africa, like, <laughs> it just doesn't, doesn't fit, does it? So, so say, oh, it was the wrong map. No, it was a great map for Europe. No, no, the, all the concepts we had, or we have had so far, they are fantastic to understand, say, the, the 80s, the 90s, but politics today, epistemology today, knowledge, fake news, response, you name it, everything you touch, education, science, politics, conflicts, uh, social relations, security, jobs, they changed, uh, not dramatically, but sufficiently to provide room for a philosophy of information that tries to have that foundational work. So in that sense, I'm a very German philosopher. Now, look at the foundations, try to provide all the bricks insofar as one can to understand better the world in which we live. Uh, but that is the world you know, in the tetralogy that 
is sort of the part of the iceberg you don't see under the surface. The, the bit that comes out, uh, it's able to come out because there's all that massive stuff under. Uh, so it's the sort of hidden foundational work that needs to be done. So that's the serious answer. So a philosophy of information that provides our time with the philosophy of its time for its time. So a contemporary philosophy that speaks to the world. That's the serious bit. The funny bit is that um, I don't mean you grew up at uh, Oxford, Cambridge, the usual thing, you're Italian, so you also know about all the funny bits and so that. And you start realizing that uh, when, if you are in Cambridge, sooner or later, if you're a great guy, you write something like Principia something. No, Newton writes the Principia, Russell writes the Principia, Moore writes the Principia. And then I start thinking, okay, we have no one in Oxford ever wrote <laughs> something. So my opportunity is a unique you know, selling point. That it's going to be an Oxford the Principia. It's not going to be just Cambridge. No. So at least we're going to be one, two, three. You know, like the rowing kind of things. We're going to lose, but at least we lose one, two, three rather than <laughs> one, two, zero. So, <laughs> so that's the Principia uh, idea. No, it's, it's seriously, you know, foundational work, but with a bit of a joke with the Cambridge people. <laughs> that's brilliant. Um, so I'm going to move on to a few questions for Alec. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, so. I'm going to open up with your entrepreneurial background. So you're you're a serial entrepreneur, and your first company being Reva. Um, could you talk us through where that entrepreneurship took you, and what kind of ignited that spark right out of school? Sure. Um, so for me, it was quite early in my life, looking around and seeing who are the people that I, that I look up to, who are the people that are having an impact in the world, and how have they been able to put themselves in that position to have that platform? Um, and it seemed that there were two things, two things that they often shared. Um, one was technology, and the other, the other was being able to build a big company off the back of that. Um, so this, this was part of kind of age six, the thinking in my head that led me to start programming. I saw Bill Gates, this fantastic programmer. I had to do a presentation on him at school, I remember. Um, and I thought I couldn't not explore this, see where it can go. And um, that was my main focus for a long time. It was only towards my final years at school where I started to think, how can I actually, um, how can I actually kind of execute on something? I'm learning really efficiently, but how can I actually get something out there and try and scale beyond myself? And so that's what led to me um, straight out of school trying to do a startup, seeing, okay, I, I, I think I can build cool stuff, but let's see how that goes down with other people. Let's see if I can bring other people onto what I'm building. Uh, the company I did out of school, it, it didn't work out, um, but I learned a hell of a lot and it gave me more, more confidence to, in the next one, make, do things a little bit differently. Um, and in that, in that one I did manage to bring, I brought on board a co-founder, convinced him that this, my vision for how it happened to be we were trying to hyperactively locate people wherever they were on the planet, indoors, outdoors. But I managed to convince someone to, to buy into my vision and not just him, but clients. Um, and it felt good. And this then gave me the confidence to go uh, like a step further and try and um, aim for something that would be bigger than that was ever going to be. Aim for something that could, in theory, be huge. Um, and started just me. Six months on, I managed to convince a co-founder to join me. Uh, six months after that, we got a couple of people on board. Um, and within a year or so, we'd, we'd managed to build enough traction and enough kind of backing from academia, given I have no back, I didn't go to university, I have no background um, 
but we got we got enough kind of proof points that we're able to raise a decent amount of money and, and bring on some really really talented people um, and so this is the kind of journey I'm on trying to trying to take what I love which is programming and scaling it beyond me and can so what's really interesting there is um, Alec you, I mean you went to a really great school and you um, learned programming skills really early on and and I think Luciano Alec it's interesting for the listener to hear both perspectives here at that point at 18 let's say in the UK um, education system where you have to decide do I go and academically um, take a course at a great institute or do I just go and learn um, by setting up a startup whether it is prosperous or not to start with how do you decide what the right um, next move is for you what was your thinking there because going and getting Cambridge or Oxford on your CV, talking to great professors, learning ethics is useful for many people, but transactional experience is also useful. What, what would your advice be to listeners and how did you make that decision first, Alec? Um, so for me, first of all, what caused me to start questioning this, I knew it had always been assumed in my family, it was always, my, my dad went to university, but my mom didn't, but I, I was always assumed that I would go to university. I was kind of my parents thought I was reasonably smart, it was assumed I'd probably go to Oxbridge. Um, but what made me start to question this narrative was that all of my friends went without even, without, without they, it looked to me like they were kind of falling into it. And a lot of them went to do courses that they didn't seem to have much passion for. Um, and I, they, didn't, they didn't have a coherent argument for what they would be getting from university. They were all kind of reliant on what they were being told, or un that university offered, um, which they were told is kind of like it's a necessity. University gives you access to everything, so that got me questioning. Um, but ultimately, it was I started to think. I started to think um, transfer. I'd done a lot of reading about kind of VC and things at the time, and I started to transfer some ideas I was picking up there, and thinking, okay, in, if VCs are looking for the top, like. They make almost all of their returns from the, the top company in their portfolio yeah. of 20 or whatever. They're looking for the moonshots. And so they're trying out the moonshots. Why don't I take a similar approach here? Why don't I just go for broke every time until <laughs> I don't care if I fail? I don't, I, I'll learn. Um, what's the worst that can happen? Um, I think I'm sufficient, my, my skills as a programmer are sufficiently in demand that I actually, frankly, don't need to be too concerned about being able to make ends meet. So why the hell not? Um, and why the hell not try and maximize the rate at which I learn? Why the hell not um, try and see if I can have some, make, make, it, make some kind of impact? That makes sense. So, so then taking that point on, Luciano, if you were talking to an Alec at age 18, um, who is gonna go for the very risky moonshot um, path, would there be any encouragement you'd give him to come to Oxbridge and study computer science or philosophy? Uh, it, it would be difficult. I think <laughs> Alec just, uh, just mentioned some of the major ingredients that you need to, to, to succeed in it. Uh, passion, a vision, ambition. Uh, and sometimes those things, they, they're just there. And, uh, and you don't need to make them grow any further. Uh, so an education in you know, a three years, say in Oxford, uh, often uh, what we what we are breeding is the is the golden medium, like is the perfect lawyer, <laughs> or 
or the very imperfect politician, trust me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you guys so, are great at that. You're the best. Yeah, I'm specialising in failure here. Uh, that's what I remind uh, anyone who complains uh, uh, about recent events uh, in the history of this country. Like, <laughs> if you look at where they come from, uh, something is not working here. Um, so uh, at some point, um, we need to remember that uh, a university education um, can also be a terrible way of um, uh, killing exactly those three things, passion, vision, ambition, and transforming people in the third gear within the system. Now, trust me, now, from, from the philosophy professor at Oxford, you're not going to get you know, bashing you know, from Oxford. It's, it's a great system. It's a great mechanism. Uh, and often it's used to signal the ability of an individual. When I first arrived to Oxford, I mean, as an Italian, didn't know anything about the system and mechanism and so on. I realized that there were so many people taking a degree in philosophy and theology. And I you know with the, with the kind of mentality I had, like, do we need all these theologians in society? Because I came from a world where, like, no, you train for a particular job, you learn the skills, and you go and do their job. So you learn to be a theologian, I guess, you know, the UK must be full of jobs for theologians. So, so, <laughs> and then I realized you know, pretty quickly that it was, just, it was a signaling mechanism. You are signaling to society that you are good enough to get to Oxford, get a great degree in anything whatsoever, yeah. smart enough to make it great grades. You get to you know, then the real world, you become you know, someone somewhere and because they are going to train you anyway in whatever you know, that job requires. It could be the city, it could be a big bank, it could be a big you know, so, uh, logistic enterprise, it could be an entrepreneurial uh, job. But then at that point, you know, back to us, say, do I really need to get a degree in theology and philosophy to be an entrepreneur? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I have the skills and the abilities. But let me uh, hide, sort of highlight something else. University is also a place where you build your network. Uh, not to be underestimated, uh, especially if you are uh, not a bad politician. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, your people will come from that group. And all of a sudden, uh, John, Peter, Mary, and someone else, oh, we are you know, good friends, old friends from college, except. So there's a lot of other elements here that play a role. So my answer to <laughs> the younger you guys, I'm not quite sure, because if you know what you want to do, you have the skills and the ability to learn what you need, get in there. Maybe you don't need uh, that kind of uh, particular uh, sort of special path. My wife is a neuroscientist. She's the, you know, the chair of uh, translational neuroscience here. You want to be a neuroscientist in life? Well, I guess I, uh, going through Oxford is the only way uh, no, to get that level of expertise, Oxford or any other place. But to be an entrepreneur, maybe maybe not. I mean, you don't have to go to the business school necessarily. Uh, so I think that there's, there's flexibility here and we should be intelligent. I think um, that leads quite nicely on to, um, and then I'll, I'll hand back to you there. Sorry for cutting in here, but it just seems very relevant. Um, a big topic that we're all talking about is automation of um, talent. And for me, what needs to be looked at is what university is... Um, acquiring talent in and then taking them out into the field so your your wife uh, is a great example of where that absolutely needs to be educated and incubated in further education what are the courses 
that beyond being prestigious and building up a network, we should be looking at there is an abundance of and should be being pivoted into potentially engineering, further science, uh, philosophy, whatever it might be. Well, to me, and I try to be brief, I've already spoken too much. So uh, um, if I'm recommending to someone a particular kind of education, my recommendation is, first of all, look very carefully inside yourself and check for what is your passion. It sounds trivial, it is trivial, and it's so damn true. And trust me, people don't know. Most people have no idea about what their real, real passion is. They think they have a passion for something because that what society tells them they should have a passion for. Uh, and disentangling what society expects from what I am, who I am, what I really, really want, and looking at the mirror and says, that's me, for good and bad. And that's what I'm, no, my strengths, my weaknesses, that's the first step. The second step is to learn the languages broadly understood that are spoken by information today, which would mean, for example, being able to read uh, a music uh, script. Because, uh, and I'm talking about as an ignorant person, you put a piece of music in front of me, to me it's like Chinese. And that's the boundary of my knowledge. I will never be able, and I know by now, I will never be able to read a piece of music. That world is beyond my ability. Then all the other languages that we speak, and it's not just natural language, you know, logic, mathematics, statistics, but as I said, music, biochemistry, the, 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 even the pictures that we look at. So instead of learning facts that you know, are so abundant today, learning the languages in which facts speak, and then you are your own master. Uh, so if you can read any entry in Wikipedia and understand, quote unquote, the language of that uh, entry, your, your opportunities are boundless. When you stop and say, what language, quote unquote, that is, and I'm not talking, I'm talking English or Wikipedia, no, don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about Chinese or, or anything else. I'm talking about the sort of uh, codes spoken by our contemporary uh, society. Then uh, uh, I know where the limits of uh, my world are. Now, Wittgenstein would say, you know, the limits of my world are the limits of my language. It, it meant natural language. I think we should really talk more, more broadly, but that's a good idea. So moving on to... Can, can I just quickly address something? Now? Yeah, yeah, of course. <clears throat> um, in terms of people choosing what they want to do, I think, or at least what I've seen amongst my groups of friends, is there's a new challenge that's emerging at the moment. People have found it hard to reconcile their interests with what the job market looks like. And um, oftentimes people's interests might be art history. There aren't necessarily that many jobs for art history or, 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 theolog or theologians. Um, but something that's occurring now is people have to be more forward-thinking than they than they may have had to have been previously. Um, they've got to look and they've got to look at not just the state of the job market right now, but where they think it's going over the next ten years, twenty years, etc. There was a recent uh, tweet that Andrew Ung made um, of an email that someone sent to him, which was, uh, "Dear Andrew, I'm three years into specialist radiology training. Should I quit and do something else? Um, I.e., how close are radiologists to being replaced?" Andrew Ung, of course, is a famous AI researcher. Um, and I, this is a real problem that a lot of my friends face. They don't know whether they should be, they don't know which fields that they should be exploring because they don't know which ones are going to be deprecated. We're seeing, of course, I mean, we're on a lot of jobs, so for example, law firms have been yeah. replaced by technology. At some point, there's going to be a huge step change when we start seeing, say, driverless cars. Um, and it's only going to, like, this is going to start to be more and more all-consuming. and. People are scared for how they they're basically betting their life on something, but they they don't have the understanding, they don't have the context to know 
um, like what that landscape is ultimately going to be. Yeah, they're, well, they're I think I think um, I mean everyone's compelled with that right now. There's uh, in America the number one uh, profession is is driving, isn't it? And that's clearly in the next several years easy to see how. Uh, Tesla have just uncovered a, a, a prototype of the um, driverless um, lorries, uh, long haul lorries that they're going to be bringing out. And then obviously uh, Uber is not hard to see in certain ecosystems, Silicon Valley to start with, American, Western uh, countries where that's going to become automated. But then if you actually go on to academic, um, typical... Um, vocations like in law i mean i think that ai just did ten thousand hours worth of legal work in one hour uh in the last couple of months um so it's the toughest thing it's what what do you go and invest the time in but i i come back to i think um it is for education to change the syllabus and teach people how to upskill because clearly the, I, I think the future is going to be more on a consulting upskilling basis and so getting a degree that gives you 40 years of well-paid work is just not the ecosystem that people are living in anymore so uh, companies like maybe Codacity and there's some good American examples as well and people need to be educated to buy into. I mean what's what's really interesting here is we're talking from a very western centric point of view we're not necessarily thinking about what it's gonna what's gonna happen to the developing nations in the world when automation really takes hold I mean there was a recent infographic by the raconteur I don't know if any of you saw it and it said that 85 percent of jobs in Ethiopia alone will be obsolete when automation takes hold and that's 77 percent in China 67 percent in India this is going to be a far bigger problem for the developing nations than it will be for the Western world because we have adaptability, we have money, we we have the complete know-how. We we are kind of the Western world is very futurist in its thinking, whereas the developing nations are struggling with even the most basic things like shelter and food and water. So, what's going to happen? My question to kind of this panel is: What's going to happen to the developing nations, and where can any of us see it actually benefiting developing nations or Will it just make problems worse? I think it's hard to see how it benefits developing nations. Um, already, a large amount of employment of developing nations is essentially um, kind of picking up the scraps of work that happen to be not particularly cheap to automate. Um, weaving garments and clothing, etc. Um, but as the cost of creating this technology and new technologies like 3D printing come along, it, there are there are fewer and fewer of these kind of scraps of work that will be going uh, going to the developing world, and we in the West have a bit of monopoly on um, creative jobs. Almost all creative jobs are in the West, and the the creative the, the more creative the job, the the more likely it is that it's going to still exist in forty years time. Um, but I mean, we we need to think long and hard about how we're going to avoid totally destroying the developing world when when capitalism no longer is flowing money there um yeah, yeah. luciano what, what do you think 
Oh, I agree, especially about the remark on uh, where creativity, uh, not uh, not as a phenomenon, but as a as a paid job, <laughs> uh, is. I mean, creativity is is a human feature, but where do you get paid to be creative? Well, that's that's sort of a northern hemisphere, you know, developed countries, and so on. Uh, so that is important to uh, to have in mind. At the same time, uh, and I think it's just complementary what we've said so far. Um, there's a way in which the world should go, and there's a way in which the world is going. Uh, the way the world is going uh, is towards a, a polarization of, of jobs. Uh, we will have, uh, imagine like a, like a sandwich where the two slices of bread get further and further apart because what you put in the middle is more and more automation. So a lot and massive amount of jobs will be automated uh, by making sure that uh, cheap, uh, not particularly smart, not particularly attractive, boring, repetitive jobs that, however, it's too expensive to have a robot doing, or just not possible, uh, uh, then will be allocated to uh, developing countries, people, no, gig economy included. And then uh, on the other side, the, the managerial, the strategic, the creative, uh, the sort of touch, nice element that there will be not further polarized, also in terms of pay. Um, I think that's the way we are sort of developing at the moment. It's kind of the, if you have to predict what is the next railway station at which this particular train is, is going, what that seems to be. Um, it shouldn't be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. There's no necessity. I mean, history is not physics. There are no, not fixed laws. We make them. We make this happening. So it's entirely up to us. And it is our responsibility that this polarization is happening how we could sort of counterbalance this, how we could make sure that these two slices of bread don't, don't sort of, as it were, move further and further apart from each other. Well, that is, a, is social and political decisions. We could decide, for example, that, uh, let me give you an example, we stop subsidizing uh, agriculture at a level that is ridiculous in Europe, and I'm talking Europe, not European Union only, in Europe, because that kind of stuff is produced much more cheaply, much better elsewhere, called no, developing countries, which we then provide funding for, meanwhile undercutting them in terms of what they can export. Well, this is a bit insane, uh, because, no, for example, in this case, we need to provide uh, Europe with agricultural independence, autonomy, should anything happen. I mean, really, is this a 19th century sort of mentality? So the same happens in the United States. There are huge pockets of um, value that we are under, under uh, exploiting or totally wasting. The result is this polarization is unfortunate and I'm not terribly optimistic about our ability to reverse this trend, but I'm absolutely certain that we could if we wanted. That's really interesting. You, you mentioned the 19th century mentality. What I think, the, I think the problem here is bigger than um, automation. I think what we're seeing is the Western world getting, getting better and better at extracting value from um, the developing world, the lower half of the socioeconomic spectrum. So a company like Google, I think, is an example of this. Google are getting better and better at kind of gaming the, gaming the minds of the less educated, the lower half of the socioeconomic spectrum, um, in order to optimize their advertising revenues. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, it's, and what, what is happening here? I mean, I, I use Adblocker, I've I got a, a lot of people, I guess you guys possibly use an Adblocker. Um, my, I think a big concern is companies like Google 
they're taking not from us, I'm providing almost no money to Google, it's from the less educated who, uh, whose behavior is being manipulated by companies like Google. Um, <clears throat> and the money is ending up in the pockets of the very wealthy, the elite. And I think this is probably a bigger problem than automation, even, even bigger than automation. Uh, I think that that, that f might be a, a reasonable view. I, I, I don't disagree with that. At the same time, remember that I, we all know that and all this works in terms of advertising. I mean, the profile of someone who earns $1 a day is pretty useless. The profile of someone who earns $100 a day, well, that's what I want. Uh, so if I'm a company and I come to you, Google, and I want to advertise something, you better provide me with the profile of, say, 100,000 people who can have disposable income for like millions of dollars, then my new whatever uh, is going to be better advertised and makes a profit rather than having, you know, say, uh, uh, half a million people who you know, can hardly afford like a sandwich or a glass of clean water. So I'm not disputing what you said. I think that uh, we are seeing uh, an overall get from wherever you can get sort of mentality. And, and some people are way more fragile and uh, at risk than others. I completely agree on the point of education. Essentially, there where the boundaries are lower, the barriers are easier to uh, be overcome, well, that is exactly where the digital business uh, seems to be more aggressive, uh, inevitably. Um, for good or bad, I mean, I, I don't want to build any sort of conspiracy theory. That it's just in the logic of, of profit making. Um, if I start making a lot of profit in that corner and by investing more in that corner, I get more profit, well, guess what? I invest more and I get more profit and until I get to a wall and I change more. Uh, so this is um, a procedure that um, maybe not for today, uh, unless we want to explore this. But then again, it's a socio-political responsibility of making sure that these mechanisms are properly regulated. You can't complain about the logical mechanism. It's like thinking, oh my goodness, no, I, I cut myself with a knife. Is the knife's fault because it's too sharp, really. Like, <laughs> I mean, in what sense, you know, you, you find that we left, uh, as a, a society, we left for a couple of decades now, an empty space of policy that has been occupied by digital companies. There's a fault of the digital companies, surely, but also a fault of society for leaving that space completely empty. And by experience, uh, without mentioning too many names, I can tell you, working at the highest level in this country, in Europe and in Italy, Washington included, there's an unwillingness to take responsibility for this public space. Next thing you know, is occupied by companies because someone uh, has to take decisions. So in, the, in that respect, I'm uh, equally critical, let's say, of the socio-political side as I am of the business side. Uh, it's a kind of co-responsibility here. Yeah, so I just, um, and then we can move on, just want to really champion this point, which is if you look at the FCA in finance or any of the regulatory bodies in finance, which go back 20 years ago, your peers from Oxbridge or great schools would have been jumping into trading or hedge funds. Obviously, that needs to be regulated because the system we're living in is I'm going to take what I can get. You're right. That's the game that everybody's playing and being told to play and is getting kudos for. Obviously that has changed over the last several years and the greatest minds and the people who want to get to the top of the pyramid are going into technology. So um, there needs to be either uh, a body championing or there needs to be regulation 
if the parties aren't prepared to put certain um, clauses into what, let's just say, a Facebook or an Amazon or a Google is able to do, of course, these publicly limited companies are just going to try and take all of the profit that they can from the corners where it's possible to do that. Have you seen or are there any ideas that we could do to try and even lobby or get governments to really pay attention to this and put something that actually cha changes the landscape? Yeah. Well, um, I wish I could say that uh, I've seen a lot of effort in this direction. Um, I've seen a little bit of uh, efforts here and there. Um, we don't have many tools to operate here. We, you can have the competition, which is always a good idea, uh, which we don't have anymore. There's only one Amazon, one, only one Facebook, only one Google, only one Apple. And all of a sudden, uh, you find them sort of chopping the world in two areas, uh, you know, mobile phone area, the search area, the social um, uh, media area, the, the, the tweet area. So, and there is no real competition here, no matter what they say. Yeah. Uh, uh, so they, these are de facto monopolies, uh, and they act inevitably as monopolies. Uh, I challenge uh, people in no, no, so, uh, doing something different if you were in that position. Um, you know, if you have the monopolist position on a particular job, uh, guess what? I mean, you, you, you make the price. Um, and you may be very enlightened, very nice, very kind, but it's going to be very difficult to self-regulate, which is the second option. Second option is to expect these, these companies, in this particular case, to come up with their own self-regulation. It's a lot to ask. It's like asking a smoker to stop smoking. I'm sure it's doable. It, it, it certainly happens. But maybe a little bit of uh, invitation uh, helps. So um, that's the third kind of uh, thing, uh, namely you know, governments, uh, sovereign national institutions, putting rules there to make sure that certain constraints are in place. So competition, self-regulation, rules of the game. In, in each case, I've seen the beginning of something that is promising, but it's the beginning. There's a long way to go. And at the moment, I think, I'm a bit sort of frustrated by the pace at which we're getting there. We seem to be getting there slowly, <laughs> very slow. Uh. I mean, I, I think that the fine on Google of a couple of billion uh, euros actually, I think, kick-started that, which was much needed, I think, in, in some respects. But if we move on to the second topic, which is AI and ethics, um, I'd like to start off by asking what the dangers or red flags of AI are. I mean, we can move on to a more positive tone after, but there's always that time old warning of what if it gets into the wrong hands and, and ends up being utilized for some sort of nefarious purpose. So um, what do we think the red flags are and what, how do we mitigate these red flags? What's happening right now that is a worrying trend? And I'll give that to Alec first. Um, let me have a quick think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, shall we uh, move okay, on no, to? I think I'm, I think. I'm oh, okay. 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 Um, so I think there are. I think the biggest problem with AI. So there, are, I, th I see it as there being two problems. There's first of all the data that's being collected that feeds this AI. Um, the second problem is what people are doing with this. Um, and I think it's just highlighted by, for example, contrasting, say, the NSA with, say, Google. 
Um, <clears throat> what someone like the NSA are doing are um, mining our information and trying to stop, like speaking very generally, stop terrorism. Um, I think what's I, 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 I have no qualms particularly with that. Um, but I think the issue is when companies use this data to try and alter our own behavior. So by trying to sell stuff to us, by um, <clears throat> influencing our lives, that, that is my biggest concern. With it. And, and, I, and I think we're seeing the very, very tip of the iceberg now. Like right now, it's, it's already an incredibly unfair playing field. We have algorithms that are incredibly computation expensive running across thousands of machines, trying to sell something, to, trying to change someone's behavior to make them buy something. Um, and that's already unfair. But as, as AI gets better and better and better, we're going to see this to an, a, like a really quite terrifying Black Mirror degree. Um, Brilliant show. Oh, I, one of my favorites, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I can see us going down this path, and it's scary, I, because how can you, st I, I mean, I've dealt with that tech. I know the, the lengths they go to. I know how shady that some of that stuff is. Um, and it's, it's, it's very hard to kind of, it's very hard for a regulatory bodies to, first of all, know, to be able to discover this intent um, and to be able to connect all the dots to, to, uh, to kind of work out what is a general principle that enables us to work out who's, who is malicious and who is just trying to um, give, just trying to help customers. Um, it's very difficult. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, um, I, I I agree, and then uh, I think that the, one of the major problems is um, is control of uh, people's behavior. Um, if you if you have a massive amount of data as we do, and you have uh, amazing automated ways of uh, uh, processing the data and taking decisions automatically on those data. Uh, on uh, people's lives, uh, the temptation of making sure that you just nudge a little bit the, that sort of segment of the population in that direction, or that you sort of undermine some kind of policy in another corner is huge. Uh, so at the moment, my, I think we we have, the sort of strategy we have is, uh, is kind of fingers crossed, like, no, let's hope nothing wrong happens. Um, because the people who have the ability to um, uh, exercise this power, and they're not, not very, very many. I mean, that's the partnership for AI. And there's about six companies in the world, more or less, plus a few others. But no, this, the, the companies that, that formed the, the partnership, um, they seem to be, at the moment, the sort of good guys, which I'm happy to admit. I mean, I'm happy to say, well, yes, overall, nothing dramatic and disastrous has happened. And... I don't expect anything dramatic and disastrous to happen tomorrow. But I'm aware of the fact that this is based on nothing else but the goodwill of the people in question. That if tomorrow that goodwill goes elsewhere or changes or the ownership uh, even change hands uh, or we have different pressure, uh, well, there's nothing to stop uh, those companies or anyone in charge to cause some kind of real disaster. Now, in this case, uh, I think that we should distinguish between um, uh, irresponsible distractions, which are all over the place in the news uh, uh, almost daily. Terminator, uh, no, Singularity, the, 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 this, that really is, uh, technically speaking, bullshit. Uh, <laughs> uh, I hope you can quote me on this. Um, it's, it's terrible. Uh, and sometimes, in the worst moments when I'm most pessimistic, I even think that there is a design behind it because it's too ridiculous to be taken seriously unless someone really has an interest in making that interesting enough. 
business that zombie movies, okay? Uh, things like we we struggle to have a Skype conversation, okay? No, we need to have no uh, extra hours to make sure that that computer actually recognizes the printer downstairs. Uh, and then we, we start talking about you know, the real general AI that will you know, conquer the world, dominate lives, yeah, whatever. Uh, me, <laughs> you know, the real things are happening and they are troublesome. They're, they're really you know, scary. As Alec was saying, you know, uh, you know, massive data control uh, human behavior. At the same time, we have a, a world that is increasingly dependent on this sophisticated technology. And it has to be because complexity, breeds more complexity as is the history of humanity what that means fragility remember when the ba had their crisis uh, at the airport i was at the airport i had to fly to berlin i was grounded for hours and why because someone had unplugged something from something else uh, power short coordinator imagine a whole world that depends on ai to make things work and all of a sudden there's a bug or there's an attack or something all of a sudden we really are in trouble that's one of the things you no know, dependency the other one, and there are many others, and I'm just mentioning some of the real issues. The other one is um, our own flexibility. We are the flexible agents. We are malleable. Next thing you know, you're told, as I'm told regularly, sorry, Professor, uh, the computer says, does, cannot, can you please? You, the lazy, flexible agent, adapts to the hard-working, stubborn mechanism. It's called AI, but next thing you know, you actually do things because that's the only way AI can actually do it. And so how many times have I clicked on something proving that I'm not a robot? Really? No, we're taking that for granted. By now, it's like, of course, I, oh, yeah, and I need to prove that I'm not a robot. Oops, is that the world in which I really want to live? That I am not the one who proves to a machine that I'm not a machine? Well, that's, it's not science fiction, it's everyday life. You, know, you must have done this a thousand times. So that little click, that all proves, one, there's no AI. Because if there were AI, surely they should be able to recognize that little box and say, I'm not a robot, because I'm smart enough to prove but you. Lu that. Lu Luciano, you know when you're doing that, you're actually um, developing Google's machine learning. I know, I know, and that's that's what the capture and recapture is for. Yeah. Uh, so I'm happy. I'm happy to you know give a little hand to, <laughs> especially the, the, the good stuff. No, the the one that instead of just telling you you're not a robot, it tells you, can you read this? Well, that's beautiful because you know that that's uh, machine learning and stuff. Yeah. But with with that in that context, the the lesson to learn is who is adapting to whom, and uh, once again, we're not thinking carefully about this. We can, we could, we should. We're not. That is scary because uh, we're building this kind of very, very complex mechanism and systems, and we're now expecting new generations to be parachuted, you no, know, called being born in this you no know, massive complex places. And all of a sudden, that's the way it works. Uh, it could have been uh, shaped, designed differently, more human-centric, etc. Once you must have learned by now, what's the line here? We could do it, it's possible, we should do it. I don't think we're doing it enough. Uh... And that that kind of brings us on to the, the third topic because it's all about surveillance and the ethics of data collection. And, and one of the most important things about AI working is the vast amounts of data behind it. Um, so I'd like to open up by asking kind of uh, where where do each of you lie in terms of 
privacy and the right to be forgotten. And is this then different for government su surveillance? And how do you then feel about third party contractors being used like Booz Allen Hamilton, Northrop, um, Darktrace and, and companies like this uh, to actually mine and collect your data in order to help the government with security. So um, I, I think I'd like to open up with Lloyd on this one, actually. I don't think that you've got a huge amount of choice. I think if you want to um, progress advantageously in the ecosystem that we're in, you need to sign up to it. In terms of ethically, whether I think that right or wrong is probably redundant. Um, what is happening is we've got PSD2 coming into place that's allowing uh, people to be aware for the first time that their data is going to be sold on by the financial industry. So I find that encouraging. Um, I think that that's also something that should span across um, different sectors. So if you're aware, for instance, we have um, the ability to give our data out and our bank is going to profit of it, but they're going to share that with us, then at least we both have some um, some benefit to that happening. If you choose that you don't want to have that and you want to, um, you know, in this day and age, live in a dark corner but be secure, that's your, that's your decision and maybe that's the, the wisest one of all of them. Um, but I just think it's the, it's the system that we're in. Um, you know, we all have been signing for several years T's and C's that we probably aren't reading properly. I think that this comes back to the point that on all of these topics, I think needs to be, um, people need to be made more aware of that there should be uh, a, a body in different sectors. This includes tech. There's mm -hmm. A, making people aware, but then mm -hmm. it's also allowing people to make decisions on policy of what's right and, and what's wrong. I, I think just picking up on that, that I think the difficult thing for policy is, is as you touched on, um, big data is used for both things that are incredibly helpful for us. So I use Google services, I, I search the web, I, I have a Gmail account, um, I use Siri, etc. Um, but that is, that is kind of increasingly intertwined with the things that are of negative value to me, or the things that I deem to be of negative value to me. So the harvesting of my data to better target me, but also also other people. My, my data is used to help inform their models, train their models, such that they can better target other people. And for me, it's all about the use. I don't, I'm fine with them having my data. Um, what I don't like is, a, is, is the intent, but that's, where, that's what policy has always really struggled to deal with. I mean, no, no policy has really ever been able, no policy for companies has ever been able to really prove I think I think that's, um where perhaps Luciano's point of maybe better than policy, it's the several people who are sat in these ivory towers, but if we make them cohort and come up with, this is what we will be allowed to do and this is what we won't be allowed to do, then yeah. there is some type of um, regulation of I, that internally. I mean, I, as Luciano said, that's like asking a smoker to <laughs> I, I don't... I don't <laughs> These companies are operating in, the, operating in their own rational self-interest. Um, I, I think it's, it's a little bit like um, food companies putting the traffic lights on food. It's a show of goodwill that eases, uh, like potentially improves perception of them, but um, and eases the likelihood of a strong regulatory hammer coming down. Um, but I, I think we need to look past and see what are they what they're, what they're actually doing right now. Actually, if we look at it, I think a lot of people would have problems with it. 
Um, and I think as a society, we need to actually like, explore this and discuss this and think, okay, perhaps this isn't good enough. Perhaps, perhaps letting them self-regulate. I mean, self-regulation doesn't have a particularly good history. Perhaps self-regulation isn't the optimal thing here. Perhaps we need to codify this um, in something better than kind of uh, like vague intuitions and codify this in actual concrete policy. Good, like solid rules of thumb can be fleshed out into case law that describe what is acceptable, what is not. Yeah, and then I think that um, one of the problems we have, uh, among many others, uh, is um, is that we we build a society that has all the incentives to make sure that uh, personal data are interesting to companies. That's called advertising. Uh, and, um, and at the same time, a backlash, thinking we really don't like this, you should self-regulate. Which is like, sort of, with a different metaphor from talking, it's like uh, you know, getting, getting children into a shop of sweets, saying everything is free, and you can grab anything you want, as much as you want, but don't touch anything, yeah? Oh, <laughs> <still> touch. <laughs> Really, so we make this immense uh, sort of added value that is called advertising available to companies as long as they can provide free, quote unquote free, sort of services to, to the public and make enormous sort of profit from advertising. And then we tell them, well, you shouldn't really touch personal data. And how am I going to advertise stuff? Please explain me. So inevitably, that, that model has the contradiction in it of giving something and saying something, but don't use it. I have um, a rather uh, uh, sort of uh, unreasonable uh, and certainly impractical uh, suggestion. We could either ban advertising online, whoa, uh, or limit the amount of money that any company can spend on advertising. Remember that advertising is a, is a kind of a, a cold war escalation. If I produce a fridge and you produce a fridge, you have to advertise then I have to advertise. If I advertise more, then you have to advertise even more. And whoever gains from here is Alec, who's actually in the middle, say, <laughs> allegedly, with a, no, with a platform where the advertising is taking place. So the analog is really not in the hands of the digital, because inevitably the analog has to self-advertise more and more and more. Take the car industry. The more they spend on, on, on advertising, the more they have to spend to make sure that you buy their car rather than another car. All of a sudden you start thinking, where is this, all this money going? Uh, and it's not little money. I mean, it's, uh, last time I checked, it was the equivalent of the GDP of uh, Sweden uh, every year as a cake. Uh, so that is uh, many hundreds of billions of dollars that could go into something else. It's not ex exactly the most productive way in which we can employ our intelligence, our technology, and our resources. And that's just a small example. That's just advertising. And and how? So, so, sorry, just just another example there. So the cig I mean, I, I heard I, I probably need to confirm this after the interview, but I believe the cigarette companies were it was a great boon to them advertising being banned, advertising cigarettes being banned. It not it is that it was the biggest bump to their profits in since their since a their beginning. Sympathy they, smoke. They no longer needed. <laughs> they no, no, no longer needed to fritter away money, competing yep. for people's attention on TV. Yeah. And this what they were spending previously. Um, simply became profit. The demand for cigarettes may have, take, may, may have taken a slight drop, mm. um, so the total industry revenue took a slight drop, but the total industry cost like, also took a huge drop, huge drop, um, yeah. so it's enormously advantageous. But I, th I, I think that's, I think that's um, interesting that you raise banning online advertising, um, because 
I have I this I suspect this is what we're heading towards. I think advertising, online targeted advertising. I mean, yeah, targeted advertising is going to get so good as we advance with AI, um, as it as this technology trickles down from the kind of top point not one percent that is deep mind through to everyone else. Advertising is going to get so good at manipulating our behaviour, and like affecting people's lives, getting people to make life decisions that they wouldn't otherwise have made, I think it's going to become more and more apparent. We're going to become more and more paranoid. And at some point, I think the only line that can really be drawn concretely by policy is targeted advertising. Is it advertising kind of specific for one person? Um, and it, this feels like really quite, like it, it feels almost inevitable to me that this is going to happen at some point. Not not soon. I think it's going. I mean, like self-driving cars, like the rest of AI. There's there's still a lot of work to be done until this is actually enabled. And how how do you, Luciano, feel about government surveillance and and the surveillance architecture that is present in the Western world, particularly? Um, uh, where where do you lie on the privacy issue? Yeah. So again, on the unreasonable side of uh, the impractical, which is um, the we should. Um, this is very difficult to say because uh, we, we're talking about human suffering, so real suffering, and it's easy to speak without having the suffering uh, first person. But let me remind you that uh, the people who, who die because of terrorist attacks, it's a fraction of a fraction of the people who die every year of car accidents. Yeah. Are we talking, into, no, even, even if we're talking in terms of a few hundreds, and that would be staggering, and every, every death there, is terrible. So we shouldn't sort of, and I certainly shouldn't uh, talk about this lightly. Having said that, if we count not deaths as you know, the most horrible accountancy you can possibly run on this planet, well, we're talking about hundreds on the one hand, and one, 1. 1.3 million people of car accidents on the other. We don't have no, a social hysterical panic about car accidents, but we do about terrorist attacks. Why? Because they seem to be not irrational, unexpected. We don't know what to do, etc. Well, but what about the car accidents? So I think what the surveillance um, is part, in my view, of this hysterical reaction that has the counterproductive effect of undermining the values that we allegedly want to defend. Yeah. So we are putting up this defense for a democratic, liberal, decent society by doing what? By digging the grave of this society? By you know, building a, a, a surveillance society? So I'm incredibly, you know, strongly, remarkably against the, any idea that this government currently, you know, the Theresa May 2, but Theresa May 1 wasn't much better either, and previous governments were also quite problematic, you know, ID introduction and so on, all that line is self-defeating. And I'm sure they mean well. I'm sure they have the uh, good of the people in mind. I don't think that they play the next move, which is not just a reaction to terrorism, put up a surveillance society, but one that once you have that surveillance society, what is left of our no, decent world that has not been undermined by terrorism? That is exactly not what the terrorist wants, to transform this world into a world in which I'm not checked by the government, I'm worried about what I'm doing, and I, I have soldiers everywhere. I can see even the police gets armed. Is that the world in which you want to live? 
Why? Because there are hundreds of people who die of terrorist attacks every year. Well, we should grow up. We should take it on the chain and say, we're ready. We're be passive about this. You want to attack us? Come, anytime. I think... Now, that's why I said this is a difficult, diff difficult point to, to have when someone in the audience is a victim of a terrorist attack yeah. and maybe someone very close. So I'm not light on this at all. But we've been here before. No, we know what happened uh, with uh, Northern Ireland. Italy has had no, the, the Red Brigades. Germany has had Atlanta. Spain, every country has had its moments. We move forward by being more pacifist and more tolerant, more inclusive than the people were attacking us. That's the only way to win this battle. Yeah. So I, I find it hard to connect that with kind of my experience and how I feel this affects me as an individual. Um, so I've been operating under the assumption that I've been monitored for a while. I, I happen to um, have a criminal record for hacking quite a large multinational, um, not Google, uh, when I was 14. And so I've kind of assumed that I've been on at least some list. And a lot of my friends are very liberal, and I, but I, I kind of realized I actually don't particularly care if my data is used to, to kind of, um, <clears throat> I guess, uh, dismiss me as a suspect of terrorism. Um, I don't care if algorithms scan over my data. I do. I do appreciate a tiny, tiny. I know. I appreciate it. it's a tiny reduction in my likelihood of death in the next year. But I, I drop. I see that as a. That is a. I. I see that gain outweighing an approximately zero cost of say GCHQ having my having my data, um, and I and I don't. I I, I, don't, I don't. I've never quite. I've never quite got the negative to this to this. Um, surveillance state, as long as the intent is good, as long as there's kind of a solid, solid framework, solid structure, solid process in place such that the intent is kept good. Um, but from what I've seen, I mean, I, I know people who've previously worked at GCHQ, I've an employee, uh, at least one of them. Um, I, and I know, that, I know that I have a good sense of their intent, and I know that they mean well. It, it, I struggle to reconcile this kind of panopticon image that people fear, say, the UK turning into. Um, with what I'm aware, like my friends' intents are, which is trying to trying to reduce the likelihood of, of innocent people being blown up. I, I mean, agree. And they've been doing a they've been doing a pretty good job. There's a reason why the deaths are, the death toll is so low. And if you look at the number that get through and manage to harm people versus the number that, that have actually been stopped, there's there's a ver that's a solid track record that has brought that number down to 100 from something actually would have been quite a lot higher. So. Yeah, How, what do you think? Uh, I, I, no, it, it's a good point. Uh, and um, I think what, what I would agree on is, um, is purpose and time limit. It's uh, what for and how long for. Uh, once you're not told what for and you're not told how long for, but it's forever, for whatever purpose we need for, well, then I start getting a little bit suspicious. For a complementary reason, which is, this is going to be sound. Uh, it's going to sound a little bit nationalistic on my side. Uh, patriotic, let's say, uh, to use the gold distinction, not nationalist. Patriotic. <laughs> I'm also a British citizen. Uh, no, I'm uh, an Italian. I have double nationality. And uh, uh, so, uh, a British moment here, uh, which is, we should be leading in the world in terms of teaching a good lesson to how you build a good society. The moment we build a sovereign society, how can we tell, say, China? You shouldn't do it. And then not told, but you do it, and it's perfectly fine in your country. And then we're going to say, oh, but no, but we'll be so much cooler than you. 
Now we're good, the good guys, so we can take it. That's not that's not easy to do. I mean, we should lead by example, and it's a bit hard to tell. You no, know, remember, more than half of the world out there is non-democratic. You pick up the list of countries, and there are more countries that are not democratic than no democracies around. It's a long sort of marathon that we still have in front of us. If we in you no know, one of the countries where you no know, democracy was born, we don't send a good signal, who else is going to pick up that particular fight? Uh, so I'm a bit kind of discouraged by the fact that we have these events. I agree with you, I mean, most of the time it's probably used for the good purpose, and it might probably uh, help a little bit, uh, or maybe a little lot. <laughs> uh, but there are other values that we should be sort of uh, fostering that are being undermined and that's to the disadvantage of anyone else uh including saying europe next door and know far east europe no russia and so on how can you just tell them oh you shouldn't do this uh we can because we're good guys i think i think it can't be simplified down to just the kind of buzzword surveillance state there's so much depth to what goes on it's i mean i think intents and results are far more relevant here. I mean, we, we need to move on, but one thing I'd like to kind of just end on in terms of this topic is that there are certain policies when it comes to surveillance that are very race-orientated. So one thing that's a real issue with the ethics of surveillance is that the prevent policy exists and it targets Muslim communities in the UK. And this is where it becomes a very dangerous tool where we start profiling people. I mean, obviously, and, and I... I will be on some lists. I did politics at university. Part of it was terrorism studies and intelligence um, studies. Uh, so I will be on some lists for some of the presentations I've done. Um, but what, one of the, the key things within my study was uh, in, in terms of privacy and surveillance is that prevent and, and this kind of uh, notion of liberalism in the UK and, and in Western society really needs to be protected as equal and as a person of colour and coming from a person of colour perspective, um, I won't just be on lists because I did politics. I, I, there's potential that I'm pushed up that list because of my immigrant status, my second generation or immigrant status. And even though I'm not Muslim, it, I can see very clearly why someone of the Islamic faith would be profiled for this and be pushed up that list. I mean, moving on from this, we'll, we'll move on to security and, and cyber war, which is possibly one of my favourite topics of all time. But Snare, just on that point, and yeah. having a, a Muslim father yeah. who's from Lebanon, I wouldn't mind if I was escalated up that list because what are you going to do if you're um, trying to determine not from um, discrimination but from stereotypes how to counter terrorism best and at pace well firstly that would be by not profiling terrorism as a race orientated issue there are you know the dylan the man sorry i can't remember his name dylan something in the u.s who uh, went and mass murdered nine um black people in that church was a white man and he was never charged for terrorism he was known as a psychopath with psychological issues there's a real there's a real problem here with stereotyping and and making terrorism synonymous with a racial or religious undertone. Absolutely. And, and Can I address <laughs> just a small point before we go move on? Just a small yes. point. Just I think it's, it's connected with what we said before. Uh, remember what happens when you're driving uh, on a motorway and all of a sudden there's a police car next to you. 
your behavior changed dramatically. Yeah. Oh, but I have nothing to hide. Of course not. But trust me, your, your behavior does change. <laughs> the idea of uh, not being told that you're monitored 24-7 by the police or by anyone else, all of a sudden, there's that website I might not check too, too many times. There's that kind of uh, funny walk I might not. Uh, <laughs> I don't. There's a bag that I don't want. You can see that no, little tiny adjustments in anyone's behavior because you've been watched. We don't have to do that. Um, we can be we can be stronger and more courageous than that. That's what I'm asking. Uh, I'm saying, look, something has to be done. Of course, inevitably, surveillance has to be in place, but with a kind of not purpose and time limit and targeting. It can't be mass surveillance. Anyone just in case, all website, all the traffic, all the Vodafone, all the that that is, seems to be the, the end of any any ability to be yourself. Freely, independently, but no, it might be a matter of values here. Okay, so before, because we'll we'll run out of time pretty soon, and I do want to okay. get onto security and cyber war. Um, I'm going to do a quick fire round of just one question. And I want a yes or no answer um, to oh. this. To this, it, it, and we'll elaborate on it afterwards. Um, so uh, the question is: Do you believe that cyber war, specifically cyber war, exists? Alec. Yes. Luciano. It's happening right now. It's happening right now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Lloyd. Absolutely. Absolutely, and I, I, I'm in a firm yes, yes group <laughs> too. So we've got a consensus. <laughs> we, we should have got a no on the panel. <laughs> we should have. Just we need Thomas Ridd here. Living under a rock. <laughs> we need Thomas Ridd here. That's who we need. Um, so, Luciano, wh why why do you believe cyber war exists? Are you are you in the camp with uh, Arkila and Ron Felt? No, it's just uh, it's just a fact. I mean, uh, there are websites that are easily available where you can monitor the number of attacks that are happening every every minute of this conversation. Uh, literally, um, there's a, there wouldn't be a center for uh, cyber war and cyber defense at the NATO level if we didn't have that kind of problem. So uh, the question is not, is it happening, is it not happening? The question is like, what are we doing about it? Uh, what kind of um, lessons we can learn from the past? Uh, what sort of, um, uh, just to be specific, for example, what kind of theory of deterrence are we developing here? Because the deterrence that we inherited from the past in the you know, sort of nuclear age doesn't work anymore. The deterrence there works in terms of, you know, who is attacking you, you know, where it's coming from, and you can tell them, signal, look, if you do that, I do this, you better be careful. Uh, on a cyber attack, you're not quite sure who is attacking, uh, there's denial uh, all the time, uh, you, you can't simply respond by attacking civilian infrastructure, so it's a mess. Um, can, so, I, can I, can I, 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 ask, can I, I ask Alec? Um, Alec. Can, I, can I just say, oh, I've already yep. put my points. <laughs> I, um, you know, I had a good point. I've, it. I've got a question. Maybe yeah. I'll come back out. So as somebody who at 14... That's what I was going to ask. <laughs> ...hacked into a really large corporation. Um, yeah. Is, and, and, and individuals have the power of states uh, evermore. Is there actually anything we can do here? Well, this is where, this is where as, as Professor Luciano was just saying, I think that the complexity of it makes it incredibly difficult. So... War, as you were saying, they, you, trips on ground, there are, there are definitions you can use and you can build on top of, Geneva Convention, etc. With cyber warfare, that's a hell of a lot harder, because as you say, it, it, can't be, it can't be reliably attributed, you don't notice it, um, and the effects can be very, very subtle. Take, um, what was it called, the, the NSA's operation to 
affect the Iranian nuclear power plant. Stuxnets. Yeah, they didn't call it Stuxnet internally, they called it Zeus, yeah. something Zeus or something. Oh, Na- right. Nitro Zeus, or they, no, they called it Double Olympics, something to do with the Olympic Games, Operation Olympic Games, they called it. Yes, um, no. It's the Stuxnet <laughs> virus! They didn't, that was some researchers that named it Stuxnet. Uh. And a good documentary, by the, here is, by the way, here is Zero Day by Alex Goodman. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, Zero Day, yeah. Great documentary. Um, well, what was my point? Um, I, yeah, I think, I think, I forgot what my point was. Complexity is the biggest issue here, because... Um, there's, we can't create, we can't construct some sound guidelines and try and uh, like get people to sign on to them because there's no way to check adherence to these guidelines and there's no way we can know if they're being breached and these guidelines ha- hacking is so difficult to actually th- to actually pin down. Um, I mean, there are people who've there was a guy who changed the URL in his, in, in his URL bar by like a character um, and managed to get some private data from AT&T or someone and he was prosecuted for hacking um, and, the, and AT&T got off scot-free I, I mean I would say that's AT&T's fault but leaking user data but how do you define because a lot of hacks are essentially software that's been created by people and I mean, let's, let's take my hack for example I relied on software that had been installed set up by these people to enable um, data to be shared internally to their company, um, but it happened to be on the external web. What is the difference between me visiting it in a, in a web browser, happening to stumble across it and visiting it in a web browser, um, and copying 27 gigs of data across, um, and uh, me visiting Wikipedia? Mm-hmm. In ter- in technically speaking, there's, there's, almost, there's, there's no line that can be drawn between it. Um, in terms of tracing it back to me, that that's, can be impossible. Um, and it's, yes, it, uh, nothing is clear-cut when it comes to cyber war. Mm. Yeah, I think that uh, the, if we remember what, where we're coming from, a context where there's a, there was a lot of um, uh, transparency in the information available. You knew who had the nuclear missiles. You knew you know, what that could happen, how many you know, millions of people would be killed, and you know, where they were coming from and where they were landing. So, in, in an age which is not known for, no, as an information age, but no, the 50s, the 60s, so the, during the Cold Age, we had a lot of information about war. Now, in, in an age in which basically we live by information, oh, there's so much opaque uh, uh, no, uh, interface with where the attacks come from, in what forms, what for, what they really mean to do, because sometimes an attack seems to be you know, meaning to do X, whereas you know, it's something else that is there. So, in, the vulnerabilities that we have in our system, remember what we said at the beginning of this um, program, uh, I mentioned the fact that uh, we're relying increasingly on this uh, very sophisticated tools, you know, more complexity is growing, because that's the way we so build our society. Layers and layers of complexity. Well, these layers are fragile. Uh, so who is in charge of the defense of the fragile infrastructures that we're building? Well, all of a sudden, it's no longer the army, it's, uh, it's the Microsoft of the world. And that's why they were complaining recently, for example, uh, when they said, look, no, we don't want to be the first, the first line of defense. Well, the bad news is that they are, uh, and they're not going to get out of that role for a long while. Essentially, if you know, Microsoft or any other company, I'm talking about Microsoft, obviously, the operating system and so on, but leaves a vulnerability that is um, uh, patchable there, well, then inevitably it's calling for you know, that kind of cyber attack. 
So we knew, for example, that the recent uh, problems were caused by the NSA not telling Microsoft, telling Microsoft too late about that particular vulnerability, Microsoft reacting, but not quickly enough. And when they did, you know, lots of users not uh, patching up their own uh, computers. It's everybody's uh, responsibility at this stage. So what we're going to see in the future? I think more distributed responsibility. Uh, companies, uh, so government uh, agencies, and individuals. One thing, just to give an example to whoever is going to listen to us now at this stage of the program, unless they fast forward. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, one, one thing you can imagine, you know, we grew up with the idea that a company would have, uh, say, an operating system, would upgrade the operating system, would keep up going, and at some point would say, my dear, you are now on your own. I stop supporting that operating system because it's too old, like 10, 15 years. Guess what? That operating system might be actually common at uh, the NHS in a hospital because um, slow staff. Is that. And one thing that I would like to see is companies no longer stopping or halting, halting that particular support for all the operating systems because they are going to be the weakest link in the whole chain. And uh, that's where the cyber attack uh, will find uh, its victim. But we do live in a different world now. I think it's going to be interesting to see what the triggers are for companies to start caring about the security of their products. Because right now, um, security is so weighed down on people's list of priorities. They're, they're yeah. interested in delivering a product to a paying client. Secure, I'm like, this is particularly prevalent IoT devices. And yeah, it's, exactly. it's, it's absurd yeah. how vulnerable they are and how readily you can hack in, uh, into like, devices and say, yeah. spy on people. Yeah. But it, I think it's going to take, it's only, it, like, it's going to take more of these increasingly big events like the ransomware virus, etc., to actually trigger companies to actually start prioritizing it. Um, because it's a, it's a big, big shift that needs to happen, but first of all, in the products being actually written to be more, to be more secure, but also <clears throat> away from a lot of what cybersecurity has been historically. Most of the, of the cybersecurity industry is complete bunk. Um, if the billions that were allocated towards it were instead invested in actually fixing bugs and, and making it easier for administrators uh, to kind of secure their systems, then we'd have far fewer issues. But we need to change the thinking on this towards rather than rather than it being a kind of like retrospective an industry that happens after the after the product's created, trying to make best efforts of vaguely protective, which generally fails, um, to actually invest that effort ahead of time in the building of that product to make it secure. I think. I mean. I, there are some terrifying things that are going to start to happen. We're currently really quite bad at hacking. We're, we're really quite bad at finding vulnerabilities. Yeah, just <clears> until the AI comes around. Exactly. I think AI, AI as, soon as, as soon as we start getting AI to the level where it can start to intuit where the bugs in programs are and, hi yeah. and highlight them, that is going to utterly change the game in terms of yep. prioritization of, uh, of making secure products. And the sad news is that uh, uh, we're actually not having the conversation, despite the fact that some people like myself are pushing hard for that conversation to happen. Uh, this is the time when I can't tell you whom I'm, I'm, I've been talking to, but imagine the people who can actually make a difference, uh, both on the government side and the business side. And it's, you tell them, look, AI is coming out of the lab sooner or later. No, it's not just these big companies. And it's not the AI sort of science, science fiction. It's the ability to have some powerful agency in your pocket. It's like, click, 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 find me the best ticket for this uh, concept. Click, 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 find me. 
click, 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 find me the vulnerability in this uh, um, operating system. Click, 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 here's the vulnerability. Uh, and he said, once AI and organized crime get together, can you imagine what happens to identity theft? Oh. It's going to be a joke, yeah. a total joke. So that, because this, however, is like three, four years from now, well, then the, the usual sort of person you talk to who could make a difference, the reply is, sorry, we have more pressing issues. Now, they're cl closer home. It's not thinking, yeah, I know, but can we also spend some time thinking about this? Because it's, it's coming, and it doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. And the reply so far is, no, 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 it's too far away. And, mo and moving on from that, um, and because you mentioned it in terms of criminality, where does where do you think the dark net lies in this whole kind of um, legal and illegal space in the virtual, and how does how is that affecting security and off the back of that cyber war, like the agents that come out of the dark net or operate within the dark net, cause a lot of problems for both the virtual and the physical world. So I, I'd be really interested to get your takes on this. So just to clarify, by dark dark net, dark net, you're yeah. you're referring to a kind of an anonymized internet. Yes. So you use Tor to get into the dark net. Yes. Yeah. Go, go Basically, the, 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 the not Googleable side of internet. As well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whatever Google is aside uh, these days, uh, just to be uh, a bit simplistic, um, the dark net is is here to stay. I mean, I don't think that uh, we're going to see something. Uh, it's like asking, you know, will there ever be corners in in town that will not be dodgy? Well, if you have a town, there are dodgy corners. Uh, <laughs> internet, there are dark side of the internet. Inevitably, people who exchange a URL by a, for another URL and not under the radar, not 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 visible to the not average search engine, etc. It doesn't mean that they are not known to the police or they are not known to the no, authorities. Uh, because of course, you can also infiltrate that. It's like exactly the, the dark corner not in town. You can go there uh, at a young risk, or maybe because you want to find the, the nasty guys. Um, I don't think that that is going to be um, evitable. Uh, it's like one of those things that you can uh, prevent, um, control, uh, trying to disrupt. Um, but it will be uh, a bit too optimistic to say one day we're going to just unplug that completely. We're going to not solve the problem. Uh, the first thing to realize is that the problem is going to stay. So it's how we manage the problem as opposed to how we eliminate it completely. Uh, and for example, infiltrating the dark net uh, regularly, systematically, would keep the level of crime you know, at bay. You know, kind of uh, the kind of crime that we can live with. Uh, and as we know, that's 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 realistic. I mean, but but what, what if it becomes unrealistic? What if infiltrating becomes totally non-viable? So right now, the only way to infiltrate is basically by relying on their incompetence. Um, and so what if they're not incompetent? What if, what if they have made a mistake and they can't be infiltrated? Do you think there's a place for policy um, to come in and try and find a general rule that, say, stops the spread of child pornography on the dark net, um, but doesn't hamper the freedoms that you think we should aspire to? So I... On this, I'm a bit more cynical than, than usual. I, I think that uh, you you need to make sure that, as it happens in organized crime, there are certain kind of things that are not happening because the organized crime itself doesn't like that happening because it attracts too much attention. The the, the what thing what, what the mafia, for example, doesn't like is the shooting in the street. Because the next thing you know, there's police around, and that is bad business. So shooting in the street, 
not good. Uh, so, and it's the mafia itself that takes care of the shooting not happening. So child pornography on the dark net, not good for business. Because really, no, there are other things more so, so profitable, and therefore it's the dark net that possibly can take care of that. Not because I, I like the idea of, uh, say, organized crime policing itself, but making sure that realistically some of the nastiest things don't happen because um, it is more profitable, say, to deal with drugs or weapons or other pictures, but not really child pornography. Otherwise, that attracts the police attention. I mean, they're already doing this. It already exists. Yeah. I mean, it's like you're saying in, uh, in a town there'll always be a dark alleyway. I mean, within Tor, there are dark alleyways that already so, exist. And yeah. there's already pretty much nothing we can do about it. There's, there's nothing, there's, almost, there's possibly no way at all to infiltrate. The best that the police can do is like, copy these images and try and track down the location from the image. Um, and, and it's concerning when people can operate in this environment. Never before have they been able to do things completely anonymously, completely without ramifications. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's quite terrifying. Letting letting sects of society proliferate that uh, like live basically live here. Alec, as someone who like obviously um, wants um, technology to always progress, is the only way for that to be countered for us to, in certain um, advancements of technology, regulate it and stop it or even regress it. I know that's completely against everything you probably want. <laughs> no, so to be honest, I. I, I, I prefer my, my legislation as small and compact and simple as possible. Um, I think what we're seeing now is we're so early with the internet. Everything is, all of the arguments being made are tad, are tad dogmatic that we, we have a general intuition as to what's bad and what's good. What's, what's bad and what's, and what's good. Um, but I do think we, I think there's a, like a gap in policy that currently exists. Um, and I think we are going to have to s start creating policies that, that clamp down on it. I mean, this was what, I mean, you, you were saying, Professor Luciano, what it, it originally was, an, what originally enamored people about the internet was it was this kind of liberal, anyone could do it, anyone could be anyone, you could be a dog and you could still use the internet. Um, and it's a fantastic ideal, but my concern is that, we're, is that it's going to be in the best interests of society to curtail that. Uh, and this is not a this is not a particularly popular opinion, um, but it's it's increasingly scary the kinds of things that I, that, that and the just the, the quantity and the seriousness of the crime that is occur. Uh, when I say crime, I mean things that generally people deem are bad, and we want uh, generally people want to minimise the amount of bad stuff that happens. And so I think I think the kind of as far as the public's concerned, I think I think as they learn about this bad stuff getting badder and badder and more and more of it. I think kind of general consensus could move towards, okay, well, perhaps it does make sense to curtail this. Perhaps it does make sense to put, it, to put policy in place. Um, even if it is somewhat kind of uh, like overly severe in the interest of creating a, a, like a, a well-defined line. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's exactly the point. I mean, where the line will, will be. Uh, I agree that the, the future will see a much less uh, free-for-all, unregulated internet, uh, we're going to see something uh, a bit more uh, constrained. Um, it's really up to us to decide where the constraining happens. Uh, and in that sense, I, I wish we would go for a, a slightly more liberal uh, and tolerant uh, sort of environment, uh, even at the risk of, of having 
more uh, of crimes, more uh, of terrorist attacks. Um, we should we should put up with that for the sake of the values that we want to defend. Uh, in that sense, I'm just a touch more liberal than sort of uh, conservative in this. Um, I would like to see the opportunities that the internet has uh, to prevail on the the necessity of, uh, of constraining, regulating, uh, forbidding. Uh, people will move to some some other spaces uh, if you if we overdo it. Uh, so now the example of the public park. I mean, we want to have something that where people can enjoy themselves freely, uh, happily. If you start saying you can't play ball, you can't have a bicycle, you can't have a dog, you have no, you close it. Uh, no, between eight and nine is closed. It's closed on Saturday. It's closed. What kind of park is that? <laughs> so no, if, no, if at some point, basically, you can come here Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday from this time to that time. You can't jogging. You just, seriously, I'm going to go and swim. So I'm just worried that this public space will be so constrained at some point that we will not enjoy it anymore. I, I, I'm not sure that those are particularly reflective of the kind of policies that um, that people are generally arguing for. So, for example, end-to-end -end encryption, which includes the darknet and includes, for example, things like WhatsApp. Um, there are strong arguments that this should be either backdoored or outlawed, or there, there, probably there, there are strong arguments against end-to-end -end encryption. And that doesn't stop people from walking their dog or going to the park and enjoying the park. Um, it stops, I, I mean, I, I agree with your point about you acting differently when the police are driving by. And people will, it will change people's behavior being aware that there's a tiny chance there's an algorithm in a data center on server number 529,643 will scan their data. Um, and it, yeah, but for me that, that I, I, I haven't, I don't see too much cost in, in that sacrifice. I, I I would like to be that optimistic as well. I mean, I don't. I just worry that uh, uh, we are that all that is based on the assumption that the people in charge are good people, and I think they are at the moment. But I don't think that that's a strategy. I want to take into account the worst scenario. What happens if these hands are in the wrong hands? What happens if the government gets increasingly illiberal? What happens if we have we have you no know, even more conservative government, even less sort of uh, open-minded? And then we gave them you no know, all the data, all the accounts, all the procedures, and the back door. And then we said, oh, maybe we should be more careful. So I'm, 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 I'm happy to consider the scenario, uh, scenario that I like at the moment. But I would also like in, to work in terms of strategy. What happens if we don't work well as we are at the moment? I mean, there are a lot of things you can't do if you're kind of if you're planning for a rogue government at some point in the future that could tell significantly what like we can do today. And I, I, I don't think that's a particularly good thing to be optimizing for. I think we, we, I mean, we know who puts the government in place. We know that ultimately the, the, like the court of opinion is the public. And I mean, I, I would say we, we need to start getting concerned when, I believe it's called the Overton window, shifts too far towards, I mean, if we see it start to shift to, um, like in an oppressive direction, then I think we should start to be concerned. But right now the trend is away from that. So, I find it difficult to understand the argument that we should be planning for for basically a rogue government. No, no, no I'm not planning for. It. I'm just saying um, that uh, what what kind of um, strategies strategies in place if this data and tools are misused? Now we were talking about about there's a bias. 
uh, you are being uh, taken from someone else. The police uh, starts get, uh, getting, as, as we've been working as we speak, with preventing uh, um, tools, they start profiling people in terms of potential terrorists or uh, potential uh, crime offenders. What happens when now your um, the decision about the the, the, the penalty for, on someone gets decided on the basis solely technical term on on the data about the past of that individual? We change. Maybe that individual is not the same person anymore. Now, what happens if we essentially we start constraining the the, the, the variety of, of options and freedoms that we have in front of us, and all of a sudden you're in that box. You're an offender, you will offend again, therefore, boom, no, oh, you're black. Oh, they're even, no, even higher. So, oh, you're black from the wrong campaigns. Oh, no, let me show you that. And all of a sudden, the same individual, black, and this, I'm, I'm talking about something that we have already discussed. It's old story. Uh, it's already happening in the States widely. Have you seen uh, what happened with Amazon, not thinking about the you know, same day delivery or package free, etc.? You could map where the black people and the white people live in every ma major city. Because all of a sudden, that algorithm went bananas. Uh, Bloomberg has a beautiful uh, piece on this. And uh, inadvertently started delivering no, everything first to all the white communities and inadvertently to the black communities next. Why? <laughs> I'm a customer anyway. No, big bubble boom. Uh, and the problem was that Amazon hadn't tested the algorithm, they hadn't thought about the potential bias, the reinforcing sort of cycle, etc. That's the kind of society I would like to avoid. I mean, it's not a big. I'm not saying, oh, this is a major design. It's just that we could avoid it, and it would be a better place where, independent of, of the color of my skin, I get the delivery, not because I'm a customer. Independent of my skin, I go to a concert, and I'm not double-check. Have you seen what happens at the airport every time you go to the airport? Who do you see is being checked on the, the luggage? Trust me. The, I travel no, almost once a week. Every time you see someone being blocked, is not your professor, ever. Now, having said this, I'm going to be blocked next time. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, he's, he's the dodgy-looking kind of guy. Uh, yeah, maybe that's that's fair and that's okay. But a little bit of less sort of constraints, why not? I mean, uh, it would be a better world. But again, different views. You know? I, I, no, I, I, I totally agree with that point. I mean, I, I think this is under-prioritized thus far in research, but I, I, I think I've seen it lately picking up some steam. So in AI research, working out how to kind of better understand the thinking that's going on in this black box such that we can try and eliminate these biases. Um, I think that's a good first step. And the next step is, because it's generally not in companies' rational self-interest to spend too much time thinking about this, um, I, think I think their hand will ultimately at some point need to be forced such that they do consider it. Where, uh, yeah, I, ideally somewhat softly, but um, I think there'll need to be some pushing in this direction for companies to actually start caring about this. And I think, I think on, on that note, we'll, we'll uh, wrap it up, because I think we've covered possibly every single topic known to man when it comes to technology. <laughs> so so um, I'd just like to say thank you to all three of our panellists, um, Alec, Luciano and Lloyd um, and thank you for all of your contributions you've made this a really interesting podcast um, and I think our listeners will constantly be listening to it all the way through I am 100% sure <laughs> thank <you. laughs> um, so thank you very much um, thank you very much it's been uh, a lot of fun and thank you thank you very much for organizing this hey guys cheers for tuning in I hope you enjoyed that as much as um, Snaren 
I did. Um, I've been trying to think what type of quote um, encapsulates a human having a laptop that's the equivalent of a nuclear missile, and this one came to me. When a bird is alive, it eats ants. When a bird is dead, ants eat the bird. So, time can turn at any time. Don't devalue anyone in life. You may be powerful, but time is more powerful than you. One tree makes 1,000 matchsticks, but one matchstick can burn 1,000 trees. Post out.